all. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to another episode of the Forward Ever podcast. And today we're going to be discussing the situation in Mali and why we feel it's really important to defend Mali. So before we begin, we're just going to introduce ourselves. Um, my name is Prudence. You may remember me from the Senegal episode. I was born in Cameroon, but I reside in Calgary, which is in Western Canada. I'm an organizer of Black People United, which is a mutually collective serving African communities here in Calgary. And I'm also a work study member within the All African People's Revolutionary Party. Greetings, I'll introduce myself next. Um, my name is Inem. Um, you may remember me from the Senegal episode. Prudence and I both um, worked on that episode. Definitely check it out because I think we're gonna touch on some similar themes today. Um, I am a daughter of the Nigerian diaspora. I grew up in Northern California and I currently live in Wogodogo. That is the correct Moray pronunciation of the city that's better known as Wagadugu in French and English. It's the capital city of Burkina Faso. Um, while like here, I am co-running the Thomas Sankara Center, a Pan-African Library and Political Education Center. Um, and I'm also a work-study member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I'm so excited to be on the show with uh, y'all today. Uh, I will introduce myself next. I am Eliamani Ismail. Um, I was born in the United States, but my mother is Malian and my father is Tanzanian. Um, I'm also a work study member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and I am currently based in Senegal, where I am doing research into different types of justices, particularly as they show up in the cinematic realm and literary realm, etc. Um, and this is my first podcast, but I'm very excited to start. Um, and start we will. So uh, before we get started, we're just going to do some ancestor call-ins um, and call into the space some of the uh, fighters of our cause um, and have them be with us today. Uh, first, obviously, is going to be Modiba Keita, who was the first president of the Malian Republic. Um, he was a socialist and a pan-Africanist at his core. He entered Mali into the uh, first iteration of the all-African states, which was Mali, Guinea, and Ghana, with our beloved Nkrumah, uh, Nkrumah and, and Touré. And um, he wanted his country to move away from French neocolonialism. Um, and even though he was disposed eventually um, by a coup d'etat type thing that was led by France, um, it is such a beautiful um, honor to be living in this time period where his beloved country is um, forcing Africa, particularly Francophone Africa, um, in the direction of Pan-Africanism and away from um, the grips of French neocolonialism. So we call him into this space and we thank him for his example um, and that we can be here witnessing his legacy today. That's amazing. Um, and I'm so happy to be in the presence of Modibo Keita. The other ancestor that we want to call in today is Ali Nsitwe Diata. She was a, um, she started as a domestic uh, worker, um, a young domestic worker in the Casamance region of Dakar, Senegal, under French colonial rule during the time. I believe this was like the um, 1940s. I hope I'm not getting the date wrong. And um, she was working for a French colonizer, you know, doing um, housework for this colonizer. And at one point she visited Dakar and the story goes that in Dakar, she heard a divine voice that told her that she needed to go back to Casamance and liberate her people from the French and to resist all forms of French colonialism. And she actually initially ignored this, um, this divine voice. And the story goes that she was paralyzed 
um, for a period of time after ignoring it. And that convinced her that no, she really did have to fulfill her destiny. So she went back to the Casamance region of Senegal and she organized her people to, um, um, to evade the draft. So this was during a time when all African men in the French um, empire in Africa were forcibly conscripted, conscripted into the military. Um, so she organized draft, um, draft dodging. She organized people to stop paying colonial taxes, to stop growing colonial cash crops, and to start growing things that would actually sustain them in their community. She rejected all aspects of the French culture and way of life um, and uh, revived a lot of Jola, that's her ethnic group, uh, Jola cultural practices and religious practices. Um, and she was eventually kidnapped by the French colonizing forces and transferred to various prisons throughout Senegal and eventually to a prison in Mali where she was abused so severely that she died, I believe in her twenties. So she was a, she was a very courageous ancestor, uh, a badass woman, and we're so um, honored to have her in our space as well. So the three of us are also French speaking Africans, which is why we have been able to really kind of tap into the movements in Mali and just the Sahel in general. And since we also speak English, we thought really we're kind of duty bound to try to bridge these linguistic barriers and bring um, all those movements in Mali and the Sahel, you know, to the attention of the English speaking Africans. So January 10th is really when Mali kind of exploded into the international news sphere when the sanctions were when they were hit with the sanctions um, by ECOWAS. And ECOWAS stands for the Economic Community of West African State, which is basically like a link up of 15 African countries in, in West Africa. Um, and they essentially share like economic and political ties. And of course, as Pan-Africanists, we love the idea of African countries coming together, working together, having economic and political ties. But you know, we have to be honest, like ECOWAS is not living up to what we want it to be as Pan-African. It's just because the member states are, you know, neo-colonial puppets. So they're not going to do what we need this um, body to do. And these sanctions were honestly very severe on Mali. I mean, there was things like closure of land and air borders, suspension of all commercial and financial transactions, except for food products and pharmaceutical products, like freezing of Malian assets in the ECOWAS central bank and the suspension of all financial assistance and transactions. Like this is like some really, really severe sanctions. Um, because I broke some of its own rules to apply some of these sanctions. And it's, I think it's also important because I feel like the enemy doesn't do anything accidentally that these sanctions were announced from Ghana because um, Nana Akufo, he is the current chair of ECOWAS. So it's like Osage Fos, Ghana slapping a sanction on like Modiba Keita's Mali. It's just, it's really, it's really brutal. So I guess we should maybe talk about like, how did we get here? Like, how did Mali come to even be sanctioned so severely by ECOWAS? Okay, so I guess to get into the modern day history of Mali, we should uh, do a quick little history check um, on some of the contemporary history of Mali. So Mali was considered a relatively stable country up until 2012. Um, it had a huge tourist um, industry that was thriving. It wasn't really considered dangerous. But in 2012, um, the Malian War hit a head. Um, and the Malian War is, a, is an ongoing um, conflict between the North and the South, um, particularly between the ethnicities there um, and supposed differences that are irreconcilable. What we know, of course, is that most of these things are the product of um, colonial uh, manufacturing. But anyways, um, in 2012, um, the jihadist of other uh, 
different Islamic groups, ISIS, Al-Qaeda in West Africa, um, For One Unity and Jihad in West Africa, those type of groups started to take advantage of the uh, northern section of the country and their, their grievances. Um, what you see is, is the um, escalation of, of, of killings, of murders, of, 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 of battles going on. And um, the Malian army at the time um, starts to get fed up with the, with the president in 2012. Um, and they eventually dispose of him. After 2012 uh, comes 2013, of course, which is when we get um, Ibrahim uh, Buba Keita, which uh, his shorthand is IBK. Um, and IBK would end up ruling until 2020. But even a year before 2020 and the coup of 2020, in 2019, we start to see Malians go out into the street um, demanding the resignation um, of his prime minister. Um, they don't eventually get that, but in 2020, uh, Malians have really had enough. Uh, they're they're fed up. Um, we start to see some of the biggest protests in West African modern day history, um, and and Malians are in the streets and they are demanding the removal of of IBK. And eventually they get it. The Malian uh, army, who is led by a man named Goita, who is a very important figure, a central figure that we all have to remember here. Um, his name is Goita. He takes control of the army and uh, he takes into custody uh, IBK and IBK's government. Um, and you see jubilation in the streets. This is this is not something that is coming out of nowhere. Um, the Malians have been in the streets protesting, once again, in some of the biggest popular movements that we've seen in contemporary West African history. Um, and uh, their wishes are fulfilled. IBK, IBK is gone. Uh, and then it, you, we see the the another president come to power in 2021, whose name is uh, Ba Ndwa, uh, and Malians aren't 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 too happy with him. Very shortly after, um, he's falling into a pattern that Malians have uh, have decidedly been against for since about. 2012, um, which is that he's playing into uh, French neocolonialism, basically. Um, he is, as they believe, doing doing puppet mastery or being the lapdog for, for the French government. And so, once again, they've had enough. They get back into the streets. Um, they're demanding the removal of him. And once again, we see the central figure, Asami Goita, who takes the demands of, of these people in the streets um, and leads his army to capturing uh, that, that president in Doha, um, and disposing of him once again. Um, and so then we are in, in, in the current day situation, the current day conflict, which is that initially Goita had promised um, a, a uh, election of a sort um, to restore democracy back into the uh, Malian country. Um, and he said, well, actually, that's not enough. We're going to need five years because, well, because of his reasons and, and, and the Malian people um, weren't they didn't seem uh, very much phased by it, but very shortly after we see ECOWAS and, and um, see Dale um, make a, say that, say that that's not going to work for them. So I will let Inem continue for that. For that. Okay. Um, I think we, we should talk about this question of democracy a little bit, but before we get into that, I want to sort of contextualize this with the France Afrique again, which we talked about very extensively on the Senegal episode. Um, and I'd like to talk about extensively again here because it's really something that was relevant 
um, to everything that's happened in Mali. And I always argue you cannot talk about the Sahel, you cannot talk about, about countries in the CFA zone, and I'll talk about what that means in a second, without talking about La France Afrique and without talking about French neocolonialism. And um, a lot of the coverage, um, even on the left in the United States and other like English media, has sort of neglected this aspect, um, which is, I think, just very foundational to understanding Mali. So um, for one, um, to go sort of back historically, when Mali and other um, former French colonies gained independence, there was what, um, an agreement, which at the time was a formal agreement, um, now it's hard to say what exactly the like legality of this agreement is or like, you know, whether or not it's something that's enforced in the law or it's something more symbolic. But this was the agreement for um, the continuation of colonialism. And um, among other things, it granted France the, the right to intervene militarily in its former colonies when France would like to, when France thought that it would be necessary to do so. Um, we see this in Mali very clearly. It's the, you know, classic example, even prior to 2012, um, when we start seeing like Operation Barken, which is the, the um, where we start with Serval and then now it's Barken. So there's been different um, names for the French, like recent um, intervention in the, in the last decade. But even prior to this, France has always sort of maintained the right to intervene militarily in its former colonies. Um, and then Mali is a CFA zone country, meaning that it's using a currency that's tied to France. Um, France has voting and veto power in the um, central banks of West Africa, as well as the central banks of, of Central Africa. Um, and then Mali is required to keep half of its reserves in the Paris Treasury. Um, and there's all sorts of ways that uh, France can use this to uh, manipulate Mali economically. Um, th this is all very important uh, historical context because even prior to the protests demanding that IBK leave uh, Mali or um, leave the presidency, these, these protests actually began with calls um, for, 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 first of all, for an end to French militarism, um, for an end to French drones. We saw this is as early as 2019, calls for France, uh, French mercenaries to leave Mali. Um, so from the very beginning, as the protests are picking up, they, they were anti-imperialist from the jump. Um, even though for some reason, you know, as, as Asimi Guaita came to power, sort of his uh, ascension to power was never contextualized through this popular anti-imperialist movement, even though that's what it was. And this was also during a time when the anti-CFA movement in West Africa reached an all-time height, so much to the extent that France started working with um, members of ECOWAS, which um, known, ECOWAS in French is known as CDAO. It's, a, it's um, the French version of the acronym, so you might hear that sometimes. So France started working with um, local uh the governments of of ECOWAS to create um to basically expand uh the, the the currency and this is because in the cfa becomes so unpopular as a currency that france needs to find a way to reform it and sort of to like invisibilize their presence a little bit but it gets so blatantly sort of co-opted by france if not like you know something that france was had its hand in from the beginning that that also fails and is um, becomes incredibly uh, unpopular, and um, other ECOWAS states that aren't in the CFA zone, uh, primarily former British colonies like Nigeria and Ghana, refuse to accept, you know, a, a currency that is going to be controlled by France. So these are these are really important aspects of um, of the situation as well, because I think that sometimes we have a tendency to talk about like the militaristic side of imperialism and to separate that very much far away from the economic 
side of imperialism. Um, when it's really hard, you can't talk about uh, the, the movement against, first of all, you can't talk about the movement against IBK, Ibrahim Bukhar Keita, without talking about the fact that they started, this whole thing started because people wanted France out of the country. Um, and I don't know, it was just, I didn't see it contextualized that way very much. And then two, you can't really talk about the movement against militarism without um, having an honest conversation about economic and monetary imperialism, which has a very specific and unique character in former French colonies in Africa. So I did want to sort of add in some of that context. Um, and then we can talk about, and I think it's also really um, like brings us into this question of democracy because mm -hmm. there's this huge popular movement that brings Asimi Goita in. Um, and there was like all this, um, there were all these like ideas or like, I don't even ideas, like a lot of, um, just a lot of coverage and like analysis on the left in the US and in English speaking media just never talked about um, the anti-French movement or like the pop, like how popular he was. I heard people straight up say Asimi Goita was an unpopular president. So I don't know. If, um, I feel like um, like democracy is almost being like weaponized against Mali. It's like, you know, whenever the, whenever the junta is arriving, that's when democracy is apparently leaving in Africa, right? But it's like when we have like, I'm from Cameroon, like my president Paul Bia is about to celebrate 40 years in power, y'all. Like, do you think he's been democratically elected for 40 years? There's no pipe up there about democracy. We have like Alassane Ouattara, who literally rewrote the constitution to take a third term in Ivory Coast. You know, like the like the fight for democracy was silent at that point. So to me, I feel like it's um it's crazy because if you look at these protests, like we've never seen such large protests. People are literally saying we stand with Asimi Goita. People are saying like we have no problem with a five-year transition. Like if the Malians are saying they are fine with a five-year transition, who are we in a diaspora to decide what's best for the Malian people, right? Like, do we really know what's best for them? So honestly, this question of democracy is just, it's just really unfair to me because the Mal if ultimately the will of the people is what is democracy and the Malians are very clear on who and what they stand for. And we cannot dictate the foreign policy of, a, of another country. That's just... I completely agree, Prudence, um, that the word democracy and I guess the concept has been heavily weaponized against um, Malians and against, I guess, any other people that are using their very limited means um, to try to do something that is better for them. Um, I think fundamentally there can't be democracy in a place that doesn't have sovereignty. And I think for so long, Mali has been controlled by um, exterior forces, exterior countries, um, particularly France, um, where the people's, the people's will has not been carried out. And so if the people's will is going to be carried out by a man who doesn't look um, or who isn't behaving in the way that Westerns believe democracy looks like, I don't think the people give a damn. I think that under democracy um, or under what has made Western countries comfortable with um, with their idea of democracy um, has has really suffered Mali and Malians have suffered under it. Um, and so I don't think... Uh, trying to perform like they like they care or like um, uh, some type of 
theatrics of, of, of Western um, approved democracy um, is going to benefit the Malians, nor do I think that they care about playing into it. Um, and I think it's, it's just a very simple question of what is going to materially benefit us versus what's going to make y'all comfortable. And what we know about Africa is that what makes Western countries comfortable is usually very, very dangerous for Africans. And so um, I completely agree. I think the, the word people need to have a, a very um, baseline understanding of what democracy is and the fact that there cannot be democracy if the people themselves are not having their wishes carried out. Isn't that supposed to be the point of democracy? So, you know, what are we really talking about here? I feel there's this quote, I feel like it's by Lenin maybe, that's like, if you are going to talk about democracy, uh, any socialist will ask you for what class. And that, that's really what it is, right? Like, are we talking about a bourgeois yeah, democracy? Exactly. There's a lot of, there is a level of hypocrisy here because a lot of the people who are using this democracy word like they don't believe in the bourgeois democracies of their own countries they don't participate in elections because they know they know democracy under capitalism is inherently flawed it is in these former french colonies it's not even like bourgeois democracy is flawed neocolonial democracy is flawed like there's an extra added element of direct french intervention and i really like that you named um a little bit of this prudence and as well as Illimani, like you know, what is this word of democracy and like, how does it play out in the region? Like you said, uh, Prudence, like is Paul Bia democratically elected? And like beyond the fact that he's been in power for 40 years, you know, if he was Fidel Castro and was in power for 40 years or like Gaddafi and was in power for a long time, that's one thing. But we know that these people are like directly handpicked by France. And this is not even a secret. France rigged the elections in Gabon. They, they rigged it. They literally went, like you can find the recordings of the people um, after Omar Bongo, one of France's closest allies, um, was in power for decades, there was an election where his, his son, Ali Bongo, ran against another guy. And you can see the videos of like, the French like, election observers and you know, the people who were directly there saying, like, we knew that this was, was rigged. We did a little switcheroo. And like, the man is still in power right now. And it's been like decades. Like, this is commonly known knowledge if you just like, look for it. So how are people going to trust an electoral process if, if if you can see that like France can go out and rig an election mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. guy can still be in power like decades later, you know, I, if you people want to get up outright about a coup, go look at Chad. That's a coup that like this is not democracy. This is nepotism. Um, Idris Deby, one of France's best friends forever in the Sahel, uh, was killed last year. What 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 does France do? Who does France back? His son. That's nepotism and a little like coup in, 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 in Chad and I just like where's the outrage around that that's not popular at all there's not a single hint of anti-imperialism in that um in that coup at all um that's just France being like hey Idris Deb Debbie you know worked really well for us Mahatma do you want to like you know following your father's footsteps so I feel like there's there's room to get outrage if you're really so upset blatant. about that. I know, I feel like France is like so bold. Like honestly, people don't realize like in broad daylight, they will literally pick someone and install them as a president. Like they don't even try to be slick about it. Like it's so wild to me, but I really also think that we need to rethink the idea that we have about military. Like I get it. Everybody thinks Asini Goita is gonna turn out to be um, Mobutu and like, oh my God, we were fooled. We weren't able to call it. But I don't know, like this image that the junta is just coming in. They're just a bunch of brutes. They just know how to take order. They're just going to drag the country into hell. We need to rethink that. We all rethink this rush to elections, you know, because the Malians have seen that. We've seen that in the Sahel. There's a coup d'etat. Elections, elections, quickly, quickly, quickly. France already has its like hand-picked puppet kicking around, ready to be input. 
status quo remains, nothing has changed. That's actually why we keep seeing these coup d'etat because we are quick, quick to, like this election, election thing, I'm sorry, the people are smart, they're aware, they're like, no, we're not rushing to elections. Y'all, you're not gonna do this to us again. Let's sit back, let's calm it down. And let's, you know, let's think this through. And that's why, again, I'm always thinking, what do the Malians want? They're cool with the longer transition. Who am I over here in Canada to be like, you know what, guys, five years, it's too long. It's a mandate. That's not okay. Um, it's not on us to decide that, honestly. Yeah, I agree completely, Prudence. Honestly, <laughs> this entire thing has reminded me of this, um, this comedian, this American comedian, or an African in America, named Cat Williams, and he had this um, this uh, comedy show uh, back in like 2012 or something like that. And he was like, I think it's a, it was after Bush or something like that. And he said something. He was like, you know, all this President Hoppin, President Hoppin, don't we need to date a president for a while? And it's like to a degree, it's kind of like a similar um, happening. I think the Malians are are very aware that the exact same thing keeps happening. The exact same thing keeps happening. We have a coup d'état. We out someone who's who's playing too much in in this country that is not our country's hand. He's not working for us. And then we dispose of him. And then we get the same thing. And so the Malians saying, listen. We're not going to do that anymore. Yes, we're absolutely fine with Waito doing what he wants to do because he's the only one that's giving us what we want and has been the only one giving us what we want possibly in the entire country's history since um, the, the first president, um, since Badiba Keita. Um, but I also want to touch on, on, on what both you and Annie Nem said, you Prudence Annie Nem said, about how the military is working into this. Um, there's so many topics here. One, there's the experience of um, Anglophones who are not, um, aren't tapped into the Francophone world, um, coming up with two different analysis of, of military uh, intervention in, in, in politics um, that is very different from the Francophones who are either living it or Francophones who just um, have closer relations with Malian politics and rely on them more, um, particularly since Mali is, is colonized by the France like these other Francophone African countries are. Um, and the belief that, you know, these military leaders were trained by the U.S. or they were trained by France. And automatically this means that these military leaders are actually working against you. Well, first of all, these people have already had every single leader since since the inception working against them. I'm pretty sure they know when they're, when, when someone is working against them, when someone's working for them. And second of all, um, someone brought up a really good point, which is that especially as leftists and, and even leftists get this wrong, Anglophone leftists leftists get their analysis is wrong. We forget that Thomas Sankara, who is like everyone's absolute favorite, was military. He was trained by France. He was not elected. He came in from a coup d'etat and he did what the people wanted him to do. At the end of the day, we have to remember that the people's sovereignty re revolves around them saying, when someone is doing what we want them to do, that is the person that we're going to go with. And it is our sovereign choice to, to decide that we're going to go with them, no matter what, 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 what the trappings are of their, of their, of them being in power, whether it's, you know, we, we were able to go to the um, ballot box and put in, you know, a cute little envelope, or he came in through, you know, fire, flame and bullets. And he said, no, but I'm going to get it done for you. And they say, okay, cool. I don't care how you came in. You're getting it done for us. Who cares? So I think that's just, an added factor of the whole democracy thing and of the whole democratic thing and of the whole, the difference in why we're having this conversation right now in English, right? The difference of, of the Anglophone and the and, and the Francophone analysis. Um, and, and Enem said it earlier that Francophones and Francophone Africa has a very, very particular um, relationship with France that is not the same as the relationship Ghana and Nigeria has with, with Britain or, or the same that um, Tanzania has with Germany. Um, the, they're, they're not the same. They're, they're, it's nowhere near as, as 
per Germany doesn't have nearly as much as, as a foot on, on Tanzania's neck as France does with literally all of her quote unquote former, of course we know they're not former than most current type of col colonies that we currently have. Um, so we have to also know that distinction and know that what Mali is going through and what Francophone Africa is going through um, is something extremely, extremely uh, fresh and real and current. Um, and in no way should we be talking about colonialism in those countries in a past tense at all. I completely agree. I completely agree. And then on the question of democracy, I also just wanted to add, like, think about how popular Asimi Goita and how, like, beloved he has to be at this point for people to stand with him as Mali literally has been slapped with sanctions, like exactly. economic sanctions. It's literally been isolated from all of its neighbors and shunned by this entire neocolonial region. And the people are still going out so hard for, for Goita. And you can't even, like, show me where the anti-Goita protests are because they're invisible. Like, I, there's, they're, they're not there right now. Like maybe, you know, once National Endowment for Democracy gets its hands up in there, I don't know. But I, at this point, like... And Inam, let me also just add that not only are there no anti-Goda pro protests, but we're currently still in the middle of the Malian conflict, of the Malian war. And when those restrictions were, were, were hit on Mali, even Northern Mali came up behind Goita. Even Northern Mali um, united behind Goita. You know, like, where are you seeing that before? He's uniting a country that was currently at civil war, and you really think these people aren't universally for him, that he's not doing something that these people can say, hey, this might be good for us, even for us to even put down our weapons, you know what I mean? And, and stop the civil war that we're in right now and say, this is a uniting force. I mean, come on. No, that's just such a good point. Like he's really unifying the country and it's really beautiful. I also wanted to touch on something you mentioned, Prudence, where you were like, um, people want us to predict if he's going to be like Mobutu or something. And that's the thing, like we are scientific socialists. Our weapons are like history and theory. Um, our weapons are not fortune telling or being psychics. And I feel like people are like, wanting us to predict in the future whether or not like they're just first of all people want us to like predict whether or not the man is going to become thomas sankara they also seem to be like waiting for him to slip up to have like a got you moment like they're just like a lot of people seem to just like be waiting for like some sort of proof um or some sort of slip up um from goita to be like aha uh -huh, like we shouldn't have trusted him i think a little bit also has to do with like the bobby wine situation in uganda i think that really ruined a lot of people's trust in all um, popular movements in Africa, um, it's even like organizations in Africa, like I think that really damaged, and it's sad, like Africa is an entire continent of like billions of people and people have like taken a situation in Uganda, I, this is what I feel, has impacted a lot of people's trust and been like, yeah, we can't really trust with the masses, like the masses anymore, we can't trust like the movements anymore. Um, I think that's unfair. I think that it's impossible for anybody, like we are using history to inform our analysis. Um, we can't say exactly what's going to happen. One of the things I hear about um, Goita, and this is why people, like a lot of people are like, he's no Thomas Sankara, is because people are like, where's the, where's the ideology? Where's the political education, et cetera? Look, I can't tell you whether or not this will end up being a socialist revolution, whether or not this will be an anti-imperialist revolution, whether Goita will sell out. We don't know these things. But I can say that it took the Cuban revolution two years before it declared itself socialist. Let's not forget that. Um, the July 26th movement didn't have a clear ideology at the very, very beginning. This is based off of um, what I'm reading with my work study circle um, for the AAPRP right now. So I apologize if I get, I'm getting anything wrong, but based off of the reading that I'm doing, the 26th of July movement, they were really about getting rid of Batista. That was like, 
the BN, the um, end all be all at the very beginning for them. Um, and it was after they took power two years later, May 1961, that the revolution was proclaimed socialist. We don't know if that's going to happen in Mali or not, but I think anti-imperialism itself is worth defending. A lot of people can find it in their hearts to, to defend Iran because they understand that you know, when the Western countries are all attacking a nation trying to de um, defend its own sovereignty, it only makes sense to support an anti-imperialist struggle. So, you know, this could end up becoming a full-blown revolution or it could be you know, a, a movement for sovereignty. We don't know yet, but I think that, you know, we have we don't have good reason at this point to you know all we can see right now is 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 a man that's trying to disentangle himself from French neocolonialism and following the will of the masses up until this point. We don't really have any evidence to point at him other than like military training. But you know, I think that's pretty superficial to be honest. Like I don't think it doesn't matter. I don't think it doesn't matter. But I don't think that's the be all end all that people um, are saying that it is. Every single soldier in this region is trained by France and the US. You can ask any, I'm in Burkina Faso, I can go outside and I can ask people, um, what do you feel about any sort of coup d'etat relationship to like French and US training? And they'll tell me like, there's not a soldier here that's not trained by US, the US and France. So we don't really use that as a, like, um, the defining feature. We wanna wait and see, you know, what is he gonna do for us? And that's not just a new thing. I know that AFRICOM is new, but it's not like before AFRICOM, France wasn't up in here training people. When Sankara, like you said, Ali Mani, like when Sankara was president. So I'll just leave it there. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, just thinking about that, I was thinking about how here in Dakar, Senegal, um, I was going past um, one of the, I guess, major bases of, of Senegal, and of course, it being in the capital. Um, and outside uh, of the like fortress of sorts, there are these photos, like these very large, um, uh, like large photos, blown up photos. And in them, you see, French soldiers training Senegalese soldiers. Like you, like you literally, you know, you see the, the white men training the black men and um, the, you have the French flag um, in some of these photos. Um, you have the French, I mean, you have the French flag absolutely everywhere in, in Senegal. Um, but, you know, that, that's, the, that's the reality of the situation. The militaries in Francophone Africa are usually by and large trained by the French, if not also by the U.S. Um, and I mean, that's also what you see across the entire colonized world. Um, but yeah, so just, just reiterating what Inem said, which is that that is absolutely, that is a horrible barometer to, to figuring out someone's allegiance. Yeah. Um, like, it's really not the gotcha moment people think it is and I need to stop seeing that like just so you like I don't want to know I they do it for every single coup d'etat the first article released by leftist publication did you know he came from I don't like of course we're colonized so I'm sorry we're colonized like I did you forget maybe <laughs> So it's like, I just feel Maybe like- they think um, that soldiers have an option, like Cuba you know? or, or, or France in the US. Oh, I want France in the US. Like it doesn't work that yeah. way. <laughs> I just think we're too quick to jump to conclusion, conclusions and to make assumptions. And this honestly takes me to like my other low-key pet peeve, which is like the Russian boogeyman. Because that's the other, that's the other angle, you know? It's like when he's not trained by Africa, they're being duped by the Russians. And it's like, y'all, come on. like. I find it, first of all, incredibly disrespectful and it's like condescending to act like, you know, the Africans in Mali, they are being duped, y'all. You know, we need to come in there. We need to manage them because they just don't know what's best for them. And it's like, actually, like, let's remember that the Africans on the continent, they don't just talk and tweet when they're mad. 
they get to the streets, stay in the streets, and actually push out their leaders. We in the diaspora can actually learn something from these folks because they are truly about that life. So the whole idea of like the Russian boogeyman, it's just the Malins are very conscious. And like, you'll never find someone who's like, wow, like we're going to trade, you know, the French hegemony with like Russian hegemony. They're just very conscious that we need, we need to be sovereign. We need to remove the death grip, like the death grip of Franck Afrique on our necks. And if that means like a momentary partnership with Russia, that's fine because we need to get rid of France by any means necessary. And to me, I feel like no serious person can literally look at me and say that like Russia is a worse option than France. Like you can't genuinely say that. So I don't defend Russia. Like I only defend Africa, but I also understand that there's no perfect way to sovereignty, right? There's no perfect way to achieve Pan-Africanism. So to me, the like the little Russian link up is not like this, like, no, we can't support them. If you're an anti-imperialist, it must be just no Western forces. Like, I'm not with that. I completely agree, Prudence. Um, I think that people are, first of all, I think they're letting their uh, US-centric propaganda like go a bit too far in their minds. Um, I think that all Malians certainly understand that they don't want to start, you know, speaking Russian and 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 going to Moscow on vacation. You know what I mean? Like they don't want the 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 continuation of that type of relationship with with another country. Um and I think more than anything is the difference between the government of of France being able to put boots on the ground whenever they want to and, and do all that type of stuff versus a um, mercenary company that Mali is paying. And that contract, a very, a very specific contract of I'm going to pay you to come. And then, you know, we have our little contract. And after that, you can go. You know what I mean? Not to say that there is a very clear or a perfectly clear um, uh uh, denilation of, 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 of company and, and state in Russia, particularly, but that's a huge jump from saying, you know, the, the French government can come in whenever they want say, uh, towards saying this company can come in as we pay them. You know what I mean? And once again, that's just, uh, it's, it's an exercise of their sovereignty. And once again, every country has the right to exercise their sovereignty. Um, once again, I also think that, uh, in like this whole, Russian question um there is like that whole like uh yeah like that's good for them but you know Russia's gonna they're they're now gonna fall into to Russia's hands as Prudence was saying and once again I think it's just very 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 disrespectful um I know that Inem talked earlier about how you know no one parts it's a very African um, it's an African phenomenon. Like people only really have this type of conversation with Africans in particular. Like you don't go to the diaspora for, for, for Cubans or the diaspora for Palestinians. Don't go there like, oh man, you know, they're going to, they're going to get you Palestine. Like you Palestinians are going to be duped or, oh, you know, you, you Cubans are going to be duped. It's mm -hmm. only Africans that people have this very particular um, vision honestly, of. These, yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, honestly, because the same expectations of like, oh, are the Malian movements Marxist? I don't see that be applied to the Palestinian struggle, exactly. right? We understand that it is, they are fighting against an illegal occupation. We are standing behind you because you, the Palestinian must get their land back. Not oh, Palestinian like socialists as they're moving towards sovereignty. Like, are they, it's, it's all about what do the Palestinians want from us? How do we support them, right? It's not mm -hmm. how do we from the outside try to impose our perfect revolutionary plan to arrive at sovereignty on them. Same thing, it's always what do the Cubans need? What do they think? How can we help? 
But that energy is not applied on movements on a continent. It's just think pieces about how they're doing things incorrectly. It's think pieces about how they're being duped, about how they should. They, it's like, I don't know where that comes from, this like reaction when it comes to movements on the continent, but it's extremely it frustrating. Absolutely. It's really, really frustrating. I think it comes from a lot of things. One, I think it comes from internalized anti-Blackness for sure. Um, I think a lot of Africans honestly have internalized that Africans are stupid and that they know better than them because they were trained in Western schools and they were trained in France and they were trained in the U.S. And and, and they don't know better than Africans who are living in their situation. And, and they need to, like you, like we have said before, they need to follow the example of the Palestinian diaspora, of the Cuban diaspora, of um, the of so many other diasporas who shut up and get behind what the people on the ground are doing because they know what is best for the situation they're there right now. You don't know anything in per in, in peripheral that the people in the middle of it can't see. Like like quit, you know what I mean? So I think there's that, um, and then I also think that there is the language barrier thing. Also, I think especially um, anglophones honestly have a natural uh, sense of. Um, uh, what's the word when when people are like chauvinism? I think because of the hegemony that we live in, I think anglophones are naturally very very chauvinistic, um, and so I think that when we have these type of things going on in francophone Africa, oh my God, it's like not only are they Africans, but they don't even speak English. Like clearly, they don't know what's best. <laughs> like it's like uh, we'll figure it out for them. Um, and of course, we know that to not be true because most anglophones have literally no clue about um, the the faucets of, of French imperialism. Most people, I mean, most Anglophones, first of all, uh, are Francophiles. So and they damn sure don't know that there's current French um, uh, imperialism going on in the continent. They have no clue. So it's just like, once again, Anglophones in particular have to take an extreme step back when things happen in Francophone Africa and really figure out, I don't know, like, you know, take your, go to your, um, uh, your French newspaper online, take it, copy it, paste it into Google Translate. I don't know, but you need to figure out what the French people, what the French speakers are saying and stand behind that and literally be quiet and just support what the Africans on the ground are doing. So, yeah. Um, there's a few things that I wanted to add in as well. Um, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember like where I want to start. I'm sorry if there's some background noise also, like um, my neighbors are having a, a wedding, so it's kind of loud, but I think, I think for one, one of the things that I hear a lot, um, there's like a lot of idealism around the situation in Mali and, and its partnership with Russia. One of the things I've heard from a lot of like a lot of Pan-Africanists, and this is not even, a, for me, it's not even a language thing. I, I mean, there's an aspect to it, but I hear this also from people living in France. Um, so I think there's a bit of an imperial core um, continent divide as well, because I, I, I've, I've gotten this analysis quite a bit from France, which is um, that this idea that like Mali should absolutely never work with Russia. What Mali needs to do is to work with a continental-wide Pan-African army. Like, I don't know. It's a, like, I'm sorry, but no shit. I'm sorry. Like, can I say that? Like, I don't know if I can say that, but I, of course, yeah. Like, we're Pan-Africanists. We believe that. But do you think that Mali has that option right now? Like, do you think that Esimi Goita is like, you know, he's been presented like two. Um, applications to dossier like I you know he has two stacks of paper on his desk one is a contract with Wagner and one is for a continental-wide army um or like the diaspora coming in to help fight um and I, I, I didn't even like I want to add this in because I actually we forgot to add this in earlier some of this um the, the war is stuff, like stuff in Mali um not all of it but a lot of it also is connected to the NATO invasion of Libya um which had a huge impact on Mali and the Sahel 
right? So like this, people are experiencing like real violence. Like there's actual like real violence and massacres that are happening here in Burkina Faso here um, and in Mali and uh, Niger and other parts of the Sahel that are, are in part related to um, the U.S. invasion of Libya since um, people were able to steal arms from, from Gaddafi's weapons stash after he was overthrown and bring those arms into the Sahel um, to start uh, all sorts of violence. Do you think that like with these massacres happening that the options either to like ignore it and be like, well, y'all are on your own, like as the president, like that's not what the people want. The people are, are, are trying to find the, the quickest way to put an immediate end to um, this violence and this suffering and this, this extreme militarism. Um, option B, work with a continental wide and diaspora army. Are y'all signing up to be like, are, where's, where, no, where's the registry? Like I'll sign up. I haven't seen it though. So I don't know why this is like, why is this like the solution? Um, like that is something that we are working towards as Pan-Africanists. We don't just say things like, oh, there should be a continental wide army. And then it just appears out of thin air. There is no Malian. Like I cannot imagine a single person in Mali or Burkina Faso having the option to choose a continental wide slash diaspora Pan-African army and being like, nah, I want to work with Russia instead. Like that is absolutely not what is going on. So I feel like people need to be really honest and realistic about what the options are. You can work with France, which has colonized your country for 150 plus years, which has um, forced your country into a, a monetary situation. Like Modiba Keita quit the CFA zone when he was president of Mali and there was a coup against him. And that coup brought back Mali into the CFA economic a monetary zone. So you can either work with that colonizer that's been forcing you into this situation, that's been stealing your gold because France has all these gold reserves. No gold mines in France. There's gold mines in Mali. There's gold mines in Burkina. None in France, but those are, you know, France has its gold reserves, okay? You can work with this country that's rigged elections, that's assassinated people, that's um, uh, that's done these different coups in the past, um, that's like literally forced people into to do like uh, to, to labor camps under colonialism and the crimes are just could go on and on. Or you can work with, with Russia and Wagner, which is not ideal necessarily all the time. Wagner is a private country company. I understand that there are people talk about like the human rights violations of Wagner, and I'm not trying to say that those don't exist. Um, but here's the reality. We are living, we're, our world is becoming more multipolar. That's a very, very good thing for Africans. It's a very good thing for us to not be controlled 100% by NATO. The people that invaded Libya, murdered Gaddafi, and literally wreaked havoc across Libya and this entire uh, continent, and like damaged the Sahel from that point on. It is, and it's quite good for us actually to have another option now in the form of Russia and in China. And it doesn't mean that we want like it's going to be perfect partnership. Da -da -da. We know that Russia and China are acting in Russia and China's interest. We're saying as Africans, can we like you know finesse the situation a little bit and try to act in our own interest? Let's not forget the Haitian revolutionaries, they allied with Spain. They allied, I'm not saying we should do, we can't do that now because Spain and France are one. That's not an option anymore. But what they did is they exploited a situation when they saw that the ruling powers were beefing and they were like, we're taking advantage of that. And that's what the Haitian revolutionaries did. I think that we should look at that model. Absolutely, Inam. Um, first of all, what you guys couldn't see is that me and Prudence were absolutely dying because Inam is literally so sharp, but also hilarious because if there were two suitcases on the desk, <laughs> I'm sure Goita would go with the Pan-African one like we all would, and we would love to sign up for that registry. Um, but anyways, um, but absolutely, um, what Inam said about the Haitian Revolution is, is, is an absolute fact. I think that people really disconnect the Haitian Revolution from its historical context and from the context of it today when we talk about the... Um, only successful slave revolt in history that created um, a country of, of, of 
Africans who had been enslaved, um, which is that, you know, the French Revolution was going on. <laughs> and France, France is also um, losing control of her colonies across, uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. And they exploited that situation and said, you know what, it is such a good day that we aren't just dealing with one, you know, superpower, which in this case, in this modern day would be the US and, and the um, her European progeny. But anyways, um, and they said, we're going to exploit that. And that is exactly what Mali is doing. There's a situation, a current day situation with the, the powers that be that is not working well for them, or at least that is building a lot of anxiety between them. They said, that's great for y'all. And it's great for us because we're going to exploit that and do what it is that we have to do to get to where we have to be. And that's absolutely fine. That is exactly what countries should be doing, particularly countries that live under this hegemony, because it has always been um, the, the countries that be, usually European, obviously, that have said, well, we're going to use you to get to where we want to be. And that usually uh, results in the extreme suffering of other people. Malians are saying, well, let's use a situation and exploit it for our betterment that um, that we deserve. And that doesn't have an effect on literally anyone else. I mean, other than, I guess, French people won't be able to, I don't know, they'll, they'll have like a little bit less uh, gold in their minds or, or they won't have, I don't know, the newest iPhone every single year. I don't, I don't know. I don't care um, because it won't, it won't result in their absolute suffering in the way that um, the development of France has, has, has necessitated the suffering of, of Francophone Africa. So um, there's that. Also, I feel like funny. I also mentioned. No, go ahead, Ina. Oh, so sorry. I just, I wanted to touch on something I had just remembered that any money touched on earlier real quick. Um, and then we could, I don't know, like then Prudence, please take over. But you also mentioned this like Anglophone, Francophone divide, linguistic barrier and how that's playing into people's analyses. We've talked about France a lot in this episode. And I straight up stated at the beginning, like I do not think we should be talking about uh, quote unquote, like we said, so-called, but not really former French colonies in Africa, countries in the CFA zone using this colonial currency um, without talking about La France-Afrique, this neo-colonial relationship. And I stand by it. And one of the things I've actually heard like pushback about this, like I've heard people straight up say, um, AFRICOM is the greater threat. Um, Africa, the US is the, the world's greatest military power. Why would we talk about France? And I think that's a good question. And I have some thoughts on it. Um, I mean, for one, I absolutely think we should be talking about AFRICOM all the time. I think we should be looking at how the US and France are working together because that's what we do in every other situation. Um, France, like Ellie Money talked about how she sees the like, French flags everywhere, the images of the, the French chaining the Senegalese soldiers. I've seen like French soldiers out in the streets in Ouagadougou out here as well. France is who people see. That's who they interact with. That's who they are living under and like being crushed under. If this was the 20th century and you were in like Guinea-Bissau Guinea or Mozambique and or Angola and they're fighting the Portuguese, you're not gonna go up to them and be like, you know, the British, they're a greater empire and that the Portuguese can't do shit without, without um, without the British's help, so we should just completely ignore the Portuguese. The Portuguese were weak economically in Europe, but you don't just ignore them. You look at the relationship between the British Empire, which was the greater empire at the time, and how that reinforces Portuguese colonialism. It's the same thing if you look at Israel and Palestine. Like Israel could not do what it's doing in Palestine without massive U.S. support, massive U.S. financing and backing. Um, Israel needs the United States' support to get away with what it's doing in Palestine, but also, you know, across um across Africa, across Asia, and in the Americas, like the US reinforces Israel. So instead of, I feel like being like, oh, we should not focus on France, which I, which I do hear sometimes, 
um, we should only focus on the US. I think we should take those other models of what imperialism looks like in other contexts and instead explore how is the United States making that possible? But also we need to take a, a firm stance against France. We can't just expect people who are living and being crushed um, and who cannot breathe anymore under this French neocolonial system to just completely ignore you know, the people who are strangling them directly. Sorry, little rant, but I feel, uh, like people I'll, I'll say these, I feel like people have no idea of the extent of La Franc-Afrique. Like maybe because the name might sound cute, like Franc-Afrique or something, but it's literally like satanic relationship. Like people don't, and we touch on this a lot in the Senegal episode, which is why I think people should really listen to it. But like really France just suffocates the hell out of us. Like people just don't know how bad it is. Just, I don't know if there's an imperial power who's as blatant as France, honestly. Just like full on, just broad daylight assassinations, broad daylight handpicking of puppets. Like you can walk in certain countries, like everything around you will be France. Your phone through France, your gas you put in your car is France. You ain't got no TV if France decides that you don't have TV. Our money controlled by France, like, Folks don't realize like France is like such an aggressive, like just such a, a satanic just entity creation. It's, and it's just it's so really, ruthless. Really like it's yeah. just so ruthless. It is. How and I think that like one pop. Huh? I was thinking it gets away with it. Like there's not the much, as much outrage exactly. around it. Like, level. We hate America, we hate Israel, but like maybe it's the Eiffel Tower that confuses people and like the cute streets. But like please put France on that side. Like we need to be so anti-France the same way we like hate America and thinks it needs to be destroyed. Don't forget that Eiffel Tower is lit up by Niger's uranium. That's what powers that Eiffel Tower. Every time you look at it, I need you to think of Niger and how- Yeah, when you look at Paris, all you should think about is the blood of our people. It gets real less pretty as soon as you think of that. Mm Because I feel like there's no way I could say something like that. Like, like when you guys talk about France, like I'm sorry, because it's choking me. Like, it's literally choking me. So I, I truly, I feel like the main thing here is that we have to be like, we have to support anti-imperialist struggles and we have to be pro-sovereign. So I feel like when people have these analysis and these think pieces, like, oh, Goita, you know, he hasn't read Karl Marx yet. I'm a little iffy. It's like, <laughs> I kid you not, someone has told me that Goita is not Marxist. They can't support. And I was just like, I mean, like, God bless you. I can't even speak to you. But it's like, and I know there was like some fake communiques that came out um, kind of like in the past few weeks, which had some very, very anti-imperialist, I guess, demands or like claims or whatever from the, um, allegedly from the Goethe's government, right? It was saying things like, like French forces were going to be removed, all diplomatic, economic, military ties with France done, closing a French embassy, all French institution. However, a few days after we found out like the government officially said this communique is not ours, it's not authentic. However... A couple of days after, I think on January 31st is when the French ambassador um, was asked to leave, was asked to leave Mali within 72 hours, which that was a couple of days ago. And he has now, um, he has now since left. But I noticed like a little bit of uptake in going to support when that French communique was going around. And like I was seeing some folks suddenly posting it on her Instagram. You know what I mean? Like Goethe was kind of in with the diaspora left for that two minutes that the communique was going around. But, you know, the French ambassador was asked to leave. He has left. I think that, you know, the fact that an African country or government like exerts its dignity and is like, you're talking reckless, you're going to leave our country. That matters. Like, I'm sorry, I think it does. Um, The French are throwing tantrums and I love it. I'm petty like that. But I do think these things matter. And I know folks are like, 
well, you know, he hasn't removed the military yet. He hasn't. And I'm like, let's relax. Like, I think that, like, it's so unreasonable. Like, we've been literally strangled for hundreds of years, but somehow Asimi Goita is going to come in and remove France in, like, two months. Like, those are the expectations, and people think it's reasonable. And I he just has to thing before, because um, we were just talking about how, like, blatant France is with, like, their colonialism. And I just wanted to, like, remind people, like, once again, Anglophones who don't speak French, like, wouldn't, like, know this. But, like, when you're in Paris, like, you obviously aren't understanding, like, what's going on. But, like, if you were to turn on the TV or if you were to look at the current presidential debates or if you were to turn on the national French, um, uh, like, radio, literally all of their conversations right now are throwing tantrums about what's going on in Mali. Like, presidential campaign, um, presidential candidates one of their main talking points is, is Mali. Like just to just for you guys to understand like the the type of, of awareness and not obsession. I mean, it's not an obsession. It's literally an economic. It's an economic agreement between France and their colonies. Um, but just how colonized Francophone Africa is at their current events is massive news and massive current events in France itself for French politicians. You could never in your life see. In the UK today, um, UK Prime Minister's current ongoings and all of the TV and all of the radio obsessing about if Ghana decided to, I don't know, change their national language from English to something else. Could you ever? Never. That would be insane. That would be nuts. And you would probably look at that like, oh man, I don't think we're actually past colonialism like we thought we were. Because we're not when, when it comes to France and, and, and their colonies. We're not at all. There is a extreme... Um, well, for us, it's a trauma bond, but for them, it's 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 an economic bond. I mean, it's a we we are their livelihood, and what we do really matters to them. Um, and you can see that reflected in absolutely all of the current news for France today. I mean, it's it's not even a joke. Just scroll, and and everything is about Mali, 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 the Sahel, Burkina Faso. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, like, of course, like we were saying, prudence, like you can't get Goita, uh, Goita can't get the military out overnight, but he has taken steps, right? He has, he is in the process of getting the French military out. And that's very clear. Like we are, we are partnering uh, with Wagner for the moment. It's more strategic for us. France has said, you know, you do that, you're losing our partnership. Mali said, cool. We love that actually, you know, that's, that's currently what it is. And so it, it's not like the only thing he's done is kicked out the, um, the ambassador, given the ambassador 72 hours. But no, he's been actively in the process. And this is an ongoing thing. I mean, people sort of knew, started to know about it late last year around November. But it's been in conversation since Goita became in, like got to power. I think some of the protests in favor of Russian partnership over French preceded Goita's coup, if I remember correctly. So this has been like a long thing. Um, not so long, like, you know, snail's pace. It's I mean, it's only been like, what? How long has he even been around? Like it's been a little over a year or so, right? Um, I'm trying to. I'm not good at math, y'all. Like, anyways, or which one? Um, uh, Goita, yeah. Goita. Uh, that was 2018. So that was like September. September 2020 was like the coup. Yeah. He's anyways, been so anyways. Yeah. Um. But um, but yeah, he is taking steps. And um, well, um, what was the other thing I was gonna say? Um, oh yeah, and then I think the communiques. One of the things that the false communiques. There's a lot of like false or like not verifiable information around Goita that's circling circulating all the time on social media. 
Um, and that's kind of, you know, a lot of it is, is kind of dangerous. You know, fake news is dangerous. But I do think that there's an interesting aspect in that because these are also refle direct reflections of what the demands are on the ground. Um, so that's like another way to look at it. It's a false communique, but it's also like that shows you what the demands of the people are, what the debates and the conversations are looking like within Mali. Like the call for Bambara to become an official language, the call for Mali to lead the CFA zone. These are like cur current things that Malians are like debating out, whether it's like on their national television or like in like the bars and barber shops, et cetera, or like even on like a higher like state level. Like these are sort of the conversations that are being had. So I think that's like another way to look at some of the like so-called fake news is to just think about these in terms of like, these are like sort of the demands and discussions happening in Mali. And actually, I like perfect like um, analysis to take about it in them because um, I've, I've, I haven't used my experience as a Malian in this conversation, which is interesting, but I would say that like when I was in Mali, first of all, conversations about France are, are, are every single day. Every single conversation that you're having with a Malian in Mali is revolving around France. And this was, I went, the last time I went was November 2020. So that was right after August 2020, which is when um, EBK was, was um, took it into custody. But, um, you know, like these conversations about why is it that we're speaking French in banks? Why is it that we're speaking French in, in our schools? Like what, that doesn't make any sense. The CFA, why do we still have that? That doesn't make any sense. Why is it that, that we have like this weird pipeline with like diasporans who go to France and get their education and then come back to us and then try to lead us? That doesn't work. Once again, if we're talking about, you know, how Africans are, Africans on the ground in Africa know what's best for them and they do not want diasporans or anyone else coming in and, and leading them um, far less, you know, tweeting out their, their, their frustrations with what Africans on the ground are actually doing with themselves. But anyways, um, but yeah, I mean, like these type of conversations have been happening for, for years, if not decades, if not from the start that, and to us, they're just, and to them too, they're just natural things. Like, why are we not speaking our language? Like, why are we not using our own currency? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So yeah, and Goida, whether that communique was real or not, and of course, we know it wasn't real, but Goida is still um, fostering these type of conversations in a way in the, in, in the way that he's he's giving Malians at least what it is that they're that they've been asking for for a while. And I think in that degree, um, he's also letting a lot of it's also fostering a situation in which or a climate in which these these um frustrations are, are getting higher to 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 the top of the water if you will so yeah yeah i feel like the communique definitely kind of it does express the will of the masses and it also sets the bar extremely high for goita um but i also think that we have to be especially us in diaspora like the Malian people are patient they're aware that this is not going to take a few minutes and i think we in the diaspora we should be willing to support goita knowing that these expectations, which we too want to see realized, will take a while to, you know, come about. But I also think, um, I'm thinking also about just like the Goita effect, is what I call it, is the Goita effect in the Sahel, right? Like, you know, there was a Burkina Faso coup, people already saying that, you know, the Goita effect is going to sweep the Sahel, you know. And then, of course, when the coup happened in Burkina some of the first takes that I heard, aside from like, oh, he was trained in, you know, from the colonizers, duh. But it was also that this theory that this was a reactionary coup planned by France to oppose the real coup that was just, you know, pending. And I mean, okay, that I'll give it to them. That's a fairly decent theory. This, um, this could be true. But I don't think with the climate in the Sahel right now, like the vibe in the Sahel, 
there's just no way the masses are going to take a reactionary coup. Like, it's just, it's, go ahead, have a reactionary coup. They'll, you'll just be out coup a few weeks later because the masses won't take some reactionary stuff right now. And I know that, um, I feel like the Goita effect is going to be real and it's going to sweep the Sahel. And I guess I'm just like thinking about, I don't know, like how best to prepare ourselves to react to the things that are coming. Like we heard there was some things, some movements in that in Niger, you know, there's other countries that are going to be, maybe something's going to be happening. And I just, how do we prepare ourselves to react to that? And, you know, I guess not be so quick to assume things and just like release these think pieces. From a perspective here, like yeah. we're Sorry, I was saying, like, from a perspective here, like, in Burkina Faso, um, I think the coups get really, really sensationalized um, very quickly when, I don't know, Burkina Faso, for example, has had a lot of coups. Most transitions of power in this country have been coups. Um, if you count all coups and coup attempts, it's like the capital of Africa in terms of how many coups have happened. But like on the ground, life is still con continuing, you know, and still going on. And I think what you're saying is very... It's very, very true, Prudence, in terms of like, I think the masses that are at a level because of Goita and then all, also things leading up to Goita, like at least since 2018, if not even a little before then, I think the anti-French movement was just climbing, 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 climbing across the region. I mean, we can see this in Senegal with like uh, the France de Gage movement in Burkina. I mean, you, we remember the protests recently in, in Kaya where the um, the boys um, used a slingshot to, sh to shoot down the French military drone. I mean, this is a region, Niger, I mean, people were burning the French flag I, I, not too long ago, this is maybe a couple of years ago, um, but still within this period of framework of time. Like, I think this this whole area, it's very much like what Elimani said in, in Mali. Everywhere you go, people are um, very aware of imperialism, French neocolonialism. And I've been, I've been thinking for a while, like, I've really been feeling for a while that the Sahel is very ripe to have a revolution because the contradictions here are just so heightened. And they're just so, like, laid bare on the table. Um, people are so aware of uh, the neocolonial conditions in the context that they're living under that it would re be really, really hard for people to accept um, another uh, another like reactionary president. Let's not forget that the people in Burkina Faso, they they did Blitz Campari. They had him for like almost 30 years, almost three decades. It was 27 to be exact. Um, and I don't think they're going back there. Like I can't see them going back um, to a super reactionary regime like that. They rose up and they kicked him out. Um, and that's really what people in this area have been doing, you know? Um, and I just can't see them taking, settling for anything less. I've, I don't know, I don't want to go into like Burkina Faso too much, but even some of the takes there were weird. Like I saw like people who, you know, they're not from Burkina Faso. I don't know how extensively they've studied Burkina Faso, maybe a little bit. Um, but they have had like a, just a small amount of people with very big platforms saying that like Rakabore was a great president, this and that. Like, let's not forget this man was, you know, he was in the Thomas Sankara administration. He was quick to sell Thomas Sankara out as soon as Kampari um, came to power. Very quick. There's a book by Ernest ha um, Ernest Harsh. He's a journalist called Burkina Faso, a history of protest, revolution and something else. I can't remember the full title. It's um, it's a little dense, but you can see there, like, Rakabore was one of Blitz Campari's, like, top three guys. Like, really, he was close with, with this man that, that murdered Thomas Sankara after he, like, switched sides. Um, and this was the man that, um, that, that we're talking about. Like, I don't know. I just don't see this, like, I don't, I don't, I don't, under, I can't fathom, like, why 
it's more controversial for us to support Guaita, who's an anti, like trying to move his country away from imperialism, than it is for some people to blatantly come out and be like, uh, President Cabaret is fantastic or something like that. The only thing that he really did concretely during his time in power, and I'm not saying he was Campare like himself, but you know, what did he do other than um, than wear like the traditional clothes and then sometimes quote Thomas and Carr every now and then? I mean, is that not what Mobutu? kind of did while he was selling his country to the U.S. and, and, and Belgium. So if we're so afraid of like the next Mobutu. I don't I don't know why we're pra praising President Jacques Cabore. I mean, let me just be honest. I was thinking just in terms of like random thoughts throughout the episode, I was thinking about um, a book that I read by Frantz Fanon um, towards the African Revolution, which is a compilation of essays and um, articles that he wrote over his time um, reporting on the Algerian Revolution. And one of the things that he talks about is um, something I think we should remember, which is um, the type of um, uh, yellow journalism and, 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 and sensationalism that went on around the Algerian Revolution, which is that, um, you know, trying to convince Algerians that basically if they weren't on the side of, of the U.S. and of France and of the West, that they were going to fall into the um, influence of Russia and of China. <laughs> so we see this exact same situation going on today, which is just like, well, if you're not on the side of us good Europeans, you're going to fall in the in the um, uh, sway of, of those Eastern Europeans and Asians and, and, you know, that is communism and all that type of stuff. And, of course, I think that we're... Um, perhaps as a generation, as a people, I don't know, but I, I, I think that as a majority, we're at least a bit more critical of capitalism and we're, we're a bit more critical of those ideals that they had um, back in the, uh, what was that, the 40s? The Algerian Revolution? The 40s, 30s, 50s. Um, and, you know, we definitely should not fall prey to like the exact same maneuvering, the exact same strategy um, that even Frantz Fanon wrote about um, in, in, in his observations about what was going on as the Algerians got freedom from France. So, uh, yeah. I guess um, as we kind of move to closure, I feel like we need, I want to end on like a nice, kind of a nice note, like just thinking about like, what are some good practices for us, you know, especially us in the diaspora, those of us who call ourselves Pan-Africanists or anti-imperialists, you know, when a coup d'etat pops off, you know, maybe in a French zone where if we're honest, a lot of us, especially living in English speaking countries, like we don't like, we don't hear about Mali really in our news channels, right? Like those of us, cause we speak French, we've been tapped into those movements that we've been following Mali for like a few years, but most people only heard about Mali on January 10th when these extreme sanctions um, were put on them, right? So it's like, how should we act? Like, how do we analyze a coup, you know, when we don't really know much about a zone or we don't know much about a country, you know? And also like, is Artis, and my question is like, is our role to try to dictate the path of sovereignty? You know, is that really our role to be making these demands and like, like, like it's like people have written out the perfect revolution. And if you're not following this little write-up, they get on Twitter, or they get on their little whatever podcast or blog and they just fire away with these weird analysis. So what are some good practices? I think first, more than anything, is exactly what you said, which is recognizing that revolutions usually do not happen um, as a result of extensive planning, as a result of, you know, everyone, you know, coming to 
some type of enlightened awareness together or book clubs or things like that. Revolutions usually happen um, in collaboration with revolts. Um, and they're usually a very natural um, exertion of people's um, uh, sovereignty and of their, of their, of their wants. Um, and so I think with coup d'etats, uh, especially in francophone zones, even though of course there's that added element, like like Nem said, which is like for a lot of these countries, coup d'etat is simply the 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 type is is how power transitions. So we also we always have to be cautious of um, making sure that we're waiting and seeing when coup d'etats happen, but recognizing that when coup d'etats happen, and especially coup d'etats um, in Mali, where you saw protests of the people on the ground for weeks on end before, we have to remember that this is the people doing what people do before revolutions would happen, or even if it's just revolts, which is broadcasting their wants, um, voicing their disdain, um, and saying, you know, we're getting a little fed up here and you know the 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 kettle's starting to boil here and like something's going to have to happen and i think that if you are an african or if you're anything if you're a leftist if you're anything that that claims that you are with the people and you're for the betterment of the people and you want the people to be to to have more means to be happier then you have to support the people and what they want and what they're demanding. Um, and that is usually never, ever, ever going to be as, as, as crisp and cookie cutter as um, what's laid out in, 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 in um, the, you know, revolutionary manifesto for how a revolution has to be carried out. It never happens that way. Um, and so I think we just have to really be cognizant of, of that, that revolutions usually start very ugly, um, very messy. And usually they, they start to become a bit clearer down the line. Um, and so at the very minimum, just supporting people in what they're doing, waiting to see, using intelligence um, and being patient, like not automatically saying, you know, a coup d'etat happened, so we're in support of it because all the other coup d'etats were happening. So yay, this is gonna be great. No, you don't know that. Um, but just waiting to see and, and seeing what the people have been asking for in the context. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I don't want to say like there's no planning or like it's all spontaneous. Um, but the other thing is we're also not privy to all of the planning that's happening um, in all parts of the world, including Mali. There, there are organizations in Mali. Like there's this idea that the people are just random masses that have never been in an organization in their life and have no political affiliation. That's not true. There are organizations in Mali that are very active and that are that are um, that that are like um, connected to what's happening in Mali right now. Um, so I think that we need to be aware, like, uh, very aware of that. Um, sorry, so the question is like, how should we be responding to these things when they happen? Um, and like, what should, what should our reaction be? Well, if I think for one, I think there's a, we have a little problem also of like the way Africa gets treated. Like, I think that some people maybe are very sharp on specific areas of Africa. So they copy and paste things um where they don't necessarily apply i think the sahel region of africa and a lot of francophone africa are very integrated in a way and have very close historical connections and i could talk about it for hours like why on a people to people level these these countries in africa are very very sort of um close culturally politically etc um so it makes it a little bit easier and a little bit smoother to kind of um analyze the, those regions and the parts of Africa that were formerly colonized by France. But that's not the same as being like, well, I'm very familiar with Zimbabwe. Um, so I'm kind of an African expert. And even though I might have a limited knowledge of, of Mali, I since I'm an Africa expert, I know exactly what's going on in Mali without having like specifically studied La France Afrique or specifically studied Mali to speak on it. And I think there's a lot of that going on. Like, oh, I really know Uganda or I really know the Horn of Africa. And so that just 
makes me like an expert on Africa as a whole. I will be honest, like I'm a Pan-Africanist because I believe in the total unification and liberation of the African continent, um, all of it. Uh, I um, love Africa, you know, North, East, West, South, Central. Um, but I also know that I can't speak on every every part of Africa because my the, the level of my study at this point hasn't extended or reached to every single part of Africa. My knowledge hasn't reached every single part of Africa. So even though I have this deep desire to see the whole continent unified, I don't feel like I'm ready, for example, to get on a platform and start saying like tomorrow, um, what is going to happen in Ethiopia? Um, what is my exact analysis? This is something that I'm studying right now and I'm trying to like um, gather my ideas around, you know, Ethiopia, for example, and I've been able to learn a lot more about the TPLF, about Ethiopia in recent, um, in the recent, like, few months and years. Um, but that doesn't mean, like, as soon as it happened, because I'm more familiar with West Africa, West African politics, that I, like, that I deserve to, like, go and, like, start telling people, um, well, this is what happened uh, in, in um, Senegal and Burkina and, and, and in Mali. So I'm going to like say that, you know, the same thing will happen exactly in Ethiopia like that. And I think there's a lot of this sort of copying and pasting. And I think that we have to be really honest, like part of trying to unify an entire continent is to be very, very honest that this continent is not homogenous. We share a lot as African people. We share a lot. And I think that's beautiful. Um, but we have our differences and there's these differences are also important. And sometimes the differences can be good because we all bring, bring different experiences to the table. We're informed by different things. Our cultures are not 100% alike, but, you know, it's beautiful and they're connected and they're going to be unified. Um, we're, you know, we're going to be unified as a nation. Um, but we have to be able to understand these differences in order to get there. Um, so we should stop kind of just pretending that like, you know, if you know Azania, like South Africa well, then that means like you're going to know exactly what's going to happen five years from now in Niger, uh, just on the basis of that. That's not how it works. Um, you need to study, like I really, I highly just, I just want people to like study La France Afrique and it's so hard in English. Like I'm not going to lie. The amount of resources in French compared to the English, it's tremendously different. I mean, Elie Amani spoke on how like French media is hysterical about Africa all the time. How can um, Radio Fran like France International only talk about Africa? That would be like if the BBC only covered like African topics like 90% of the time. I mean, it's like, you know, that that says so much about how France understands its own relationship to Africa, um, how France wants us to see its relationship to Africa. You can, I was in the airport, I think it was Charles de Gaulle, but I don't remember. And um, as I was leaving Paris, I was like, I'm seeing these books about like Macron's intervention in Africa and like um, the empire that doesn't want to die, history of La France Afrique, being sold in the airport. Like you can't conceive in the US airport buying books about like the US occupation of the Philippines or the Iraq war like that in the airport. Like that would never happen. So you have to kind of understand like this is a totally different colonial relationship. France, France is like, it's just putting itself out there in a different way. So yeah, just my 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 push is for people to really try to study this relationship in particular and to be very very specific about French intervention in Africa. Yeah, I mean, y'all nailed it. And I think all I would just add is just like we need to be a little bit humble, you know, show some humility. You know, these people in Mali, um, in Burkina Faso, they actually have a revolutionary history. Let's not forget that. Um, so we might actually have quite a bit to learn from them and they've built revolutions. So I think we need to humbly just educate ourselves on La Franca Afrique and it's tough, but we can't, we have to try. And we just need to remember that this is going to be a long process and that honestly, I feel sad. And I'm also glad that like the Malians can't read some of the takes I sometimes see from English. 
um, frankly speaking, Africans, because I'm thinking they're thinking that we're supportive, that we're behind them. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to support a people's will when they want to be sovereign. So I think, you know, we're going to close it out here. I really hope that this has, you know, I think we need to find ways to bridge these linguistic barriers because, you know, they're right. They said it like what we have access to because we speak French. Like I truly, I wish I could translate all of it for folks, but it's just like so much. And we, those of us who speak French and English, we definitely need to do better at just bridging those linguistic barriers, bringing these topics to um, the English speaking diaspora, because ultimately we all have to unite around these struggles as Africans, despite the linguistic barriers. So I don't have anything else to say. I don't know if y'all do. If not, we could just close it out. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Forward Ever podcast. Um, if y'all have any questions, we're on Instagram. Like, please feel free to hit us up if you want to talk some more. Our favorite pastime is actually talking about this. Like, this is all we talk about in our WhatsApp group. So we love talking about Africa and the Sahel. Um, so, yeah, thank you all for tuning in. Um, forward ever, backwards never. Africa will try. Forward ever. Backwards never. <laughs> <laughs>